Welcome everyone to episode 84, Visual Restoration. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dale and James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'll tell you, I think we need a little bit of visual restoration in this country. I'm a little bit concerned at all levels. It's the first weeks, I guess, by the time this is posted. Yeah. Hasn't been very good so far. I hope it doesn't get worse. But, you know, a little vision might be a good thing. A little vision. Shutting our eyes. A little foresight. I think what's going on is short-term benefits at the cost of long-term gains. I think that's what's happening right now. Name of the game. I want it and I want it now. Give me my money back. But it's like that. I'm going to do everything I said I was going to do, even though I've now learned that it's stupid. (laughs) I said I was going to do it, so I've got to do it. So I guess (sighs) that the vision is maybe, maybe we need to put the blinders on some people. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wish instead of having, you know, the four year plan or the one year plan or the two year plan, like seems to happen in our government, that we instead focused on like a hundred year plan. Yes. Right. Let's think of our children's children. Vision. Vision. Right. All right. Anyway, let's have some vision and get down to the podcast. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com. You can find all of our past episodes there and other great resources. And of course, you can follow us on social media. We are at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and we have a YouTube channel. You can subscribe to that as well. All right, we've got a good show ahead today, and we are going to be discussing the latest science and stem cell news interviewing stem cell scientist Deepak Lamba about his work using stem cells as a method to restore visual deficits and blindness. It's visionary work, but first, we're going to round it up. What do you say, Dalen? Yes, yes, Kiki, we're going to round it up. But first, I just want to let the crowd know, this week's roundup is sponsored by Neural Cell News, which is sent to more than 5,000 neuroscience researchers every week. Sign up at NeuralCellNews.com to keep current everything that's happening in the neural field. And we're about to talk about neural by uh, the eye. But first things first, Kiki, tell me what's happening these last two weeks in science. I know it's not going to start well, so just hit me with the bad stuff. (laughs) Okay, we're going to jump right into the fray. Oh, my goodness. So there's no science advisor yet. I mean, this is a science podcast. We're going to talk about science in the politics that's going on. There's no science advisor yet for our government, and Donald Trump has been meeting with people to try and fill this role. (laughs) With people. With people. (laughs) Scientists? Uh, Debatable. Debatable, and additionally, only men. So I'm just going to put that out there. He met with David Galanter, who is a computer scientist at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, He's also a critic of liberal academia, and this meeting was on the 16th of January. On the 13th of January, he met with a physicist from Princeton University, William Happer, who rejects the notion that carbon dioxide emissions from human activities will cause dangerous levels of global warming. Hmm. So there are lots of media reports out there saying that these guys are contenders for the science advisor job. Galanter told Nature in an email that his meeting with Trump was, quote, wide-ranging and informal. And he added that the president is not just sharp, he's thoughtful. Happer said he didn't discuss the post with the president, but there was a conversation about science and technology. And so anyway, there's speculation, this spark of speculation, that Trump is going to pick a science advisor fairly soon who will lead the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Previous presidential science advisors have been physicists for the large part. And from Andrew Rosenberg, director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, The science advisor must cover a huge range of issues, and in order to do that, you have to have a very broad set of contacts across the disciplines. If you have someone who's a bit of an iconoclast, it seems unlikely that they would have that ability. What? 
<laughs> yeah, if somebody's very focused on one area and only involved in one area of the sciences, you know, well known in their field even, but only into that particular thing, a very narrow range of focus, they're not necessarily going to be a great science advisor. I get it. Because it's not just the physics science advisor, it's the science advisor, all the science, the things, the science, the technology. I get it. So he's so the point being that this is a guy pretty much should be in the old boys club is what I'm hearing there. And I got to be honest, <laughs> I mean, with the contender, he said there's a few things that suck out that your boy, not your boy, but no. somebody's boy, Galertner, who said the president is, quote, not just sharp, he's thoughtful, wrong on both points, makes you wonder what he thinks of everything else. And he said the guy is, is denying carbon dioxide emissions. I mean, he's with less yeah. than one percent of everybody in the world. So how is he, you know, reaching across the aisle? This is exactly. a real outsider. This is a strange, strange, strange choice, I think. Yeah, so hopefully the Republican platform is not as focused on climate change issues and is not as concerned with climate change issues as uh, the Democratic platform. So, you know, it. I mean, that kind of interest is not necessarily going to be a priority with this new cabinet pick. We got to keep looking and talking to the people out there. I feel like Trump could just say, you know what? I don't need an advisor. I'm going to make science great. And then that's totally consistent. Well, that's happened before. <laughs> there was a point in time when the science advisor was, the position was completely removed. So we will see what happens. But along those lines, hey, climate, what, what? You want to know what 2016 was? Another winner? A winner, winner, chicken dinner. Warmest year. Not in a good way. Warmest year since record keeping began in 1880. Oh. And it's also for the third year in a row. So 2014, hottest year. 2015, even hotter. 2016, hotter still. So El Nino came around and probably played a large role in increasing global average surface temperatures last year, making it a, a whopper of a year at uh, 0.94 degrees Celsius higher than the 20th century average of about 13.9 degrees Celsius or 57 degrees Fahrenheit. Eight months during 2016 set New all-time highs, including July, the Earth's warmest month on record. This is all according to NOAA and NASA reporting on January 18th. And this is only the second time in record-keeping history that this record, the annual temperature record, has been broken three years in a row. There are other records that are not things we should be excited about. As additionally, global sea ice extent has been at the lowest in potentially thousands of years, according to the National Snow and Ice Data Center and their various sea ice reconstructions. Greenhouse gases are topping out. It's great. Human activities. <laughs> Yay, we're burning fossil fuels. But the greenhouse gases are involved in trapping heat that is involved in making it so hot. And Within a decade or so, as global warming continues, 2016's heat is predicted to be par for the course. So we might see it go down this year because we've got La Nina, which is bringing a lot of cooling to various areas, a lot more rainfall. So 2017 may drop in the temperature. But according to Kevin Trenberth, the temperature record is like going up a staircase. And now with 2015 and 16, we've seemed to go up another step. Maybe oscillate around this higher level for a few years, but I don't think we'll ever go back to values we've seen in previous years. So. Yikes. Yeah, so we're probably, we've probably gone up the staircase a couple of steps. Now we're just going to go back and forth and hang out near that step for a bit and then keep going up. Got to keep climbing higher. That's right. <laughs> Is that, you, you sound really psyched about this somehow. The whole tone of this entire story was it's a win, it's a win. Can we just, I'm just to be sure, this is not a good thing. It's, is this terrible? Or this is, is it like, yeah, this is terrible. We have uh, cracks forming in Antarctica. Oh, 
the global sea ice is reducing. We're also seeing the melting of glaciers, which is going to increase sea level uh, around the world. And we're, I mean... Maybe people should start looking inland at higher altitude properties for real estate investment for the future. And along with these, this increased global temperature, I'm not talking about local temperatures, but global temperatures, we're going to see an increase in catastrophic weather events. We're going to see an increase in changing rainfall around the globe. So water that's, that has historically gone to some places is going to move and it's not going to go to those places anymore. As a result, we're going to see people moving all over the place. It's going to be a big deal. Trump's not worried about it. Though. It's okay. I don't know. The national security infrastructure is pretty concerned about it. But then again, you know, I'll stop this conversation right now before I get myself in trouble. Let's talk about some fun robots. I always love robots. But do you want one to hug your heart? Yes. <laughs> I don't really, I mean, I'm imagining something terrible, a little, yeah. ah, but this is a fantastic innovation. Researchers publishing in January 18th, Science Trans Translational Medicine have created a robotic sleeve for the human heart. And it's a silicone sleeve that they tested over pig's hearts. And it works similarly to how the heart actually pumps. And so the sleeve compresses, it slips over the heart, compresses, like clenching your heart like a fist, and twists. So compressing and twisting at the same time to be able to mimic the layers of the heart, how they contract, and to be able to efficiently and effectively move blood, which is what it is needing to do. So this Double sleeve is programmed to sync with the heart's motion. And her, uh, her research in six pigs, they measured volume of blood being pumped with and without the sleeve's health. Heart failure, of course, is going to cut the volume of blood that the heart can pump, right? But the sleeve restores the pumping volume almost to normal, just about normal, which is great. And so Ellen Roche, biomedical engineer, is now at National University of Ireland, Galway, working on advancing this. This could be another big advancement in keeping people's hearts going. Or giving them a hug because they're sad. People get sad. <laughs> My heart is sad. Well, let me give you a robot to <laughs> hug your heart. <laughs> Not what I had in mind. <laughs> So this next story I, is close to my heart as I live in Oregon uh, now. And my old home state of California has also recently taken up the cause of legalizing marijuana. Where's your state on this? I don't know. Nah. Medical, I think but it doesn't even matter. You can get anything you want in New York. Right. <laughs> There's a new study released by the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine, January 12th, and they are calling for a federal reclassification of cannabis. It is currently classified as a Schedule One drug, which means it has no accepted medical use and it has a high potential for abuse. So basically, the federal government is not seeing things eye to eye with where the states are seeing things at the moment. Schedule One status basically makes it really hard for researchers to be able to get a hold of the drug and to be able to research it, to find out exactly the benefits and the detriments of the substance. So this report says we need to know more about it if states want to legalize it and if potentially the federal government want, might want to move on this eventually. We need to know more about it. How bad is it really for people? How good is it really for people? Reclassify it so it can become easier for researchers to study. This is a 16-member committee authoring the report. And a psychologist at Florida International University in Miami, Raul Gonzalez, reviewed the report before publication. He says the legalization and commercialization of cannabis has allowed marketing to get ahead of science, which in Oregon is certainly true. We've got all sorts of potential. It's going to cure this. It's going to do that. It's going to do this. But we haven't had all of the controlled studies that need to occur to really know what's going on. So it's legal, and but still kind of in the realm of pseudoscience to a certain degree. There are negative consequences, which include respiratory and psychological problems. So, you know, you're smoking, you're going to get substance into your lungs. It can potentially lead to 
respiratory issues as a result, asthma, other things, psychological problems. It has, there are links to potentially not causal, but there is a link between cannabis use and development of psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. Additionally, there is a relationship between cannabis use and the development of addictions to other drugs, alcohol, tobacco. There's also evidence of learning, memory, and attention problems after imbibing marijuana. So there's limited data, though, as to how marijuana affects academic performance. We don't know whether it leads to people dropping out of school, unemployment, or lowered income in adulthood. We really don't have that information. So we need to know more. We know there's some, a lot of good stuff, and we have unclear findings on a lot of the bad stuff. So I know one thing, and that is that marijuana smoking leads to totally banal insights that you think <laughs> are revelatory. But the real disconnect for me here is how come you can go to wherever it's, so you go buy a bag, bag of weed, and some responsible researchers can't like study it to see what it's doing? Come on. You're behind whatever the, the class one schedule, whatever. You, we need to start over on pot. It comes from a silly cultural, I don't even know. It seemed like a little bit of racial undertones. The whole thing mm-hmm. in America with marijuana seems like kind of silly to me, but I don't know. I mean, do I want my kids smoking it? No. So I, <laughs> I, I'm a kind of agnostic. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, you know, maybe your kids will come to you someday in the future and start talking at you. And then you'll be like, what? I can't hear you. I got too much (laughs) earwax in my ears. Good chance of that. I know. And it also leads me to my final story. Researcher Zach Zakow reported at the Society of Integrative and Comparative Biology on his studies of earwax. He is working with Alexis Noel in David Hu's lab at Georgia Tech in Atlanta and uh, basically trying to figure out what is the purpose of earwax? Is what it's doing preventing the buildup of dust and other particulate matter in your ear that gets in there through the air? Is that what it's doing? Yeah. So he took a bunch of flour and added it to earwax and showed that, hey, earwax gets, and if you move the earwax, it gets all crumbly at the edges and breaks off. So maybe when you do things like eat or talk, jaw motions might be shaking loose crumbs of clumpy earwax to clear out your ear. And they have had a video of someone eating a donut that showed the earwax bucking and shifting and moving around. And so... You know, there is a more practical application of this earwax research, which is that further study might inspire new ways to reduce dust buildup in machinery, like home yeah. air filtration systems. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I'm calling it right now. <laughs> My arm guy here, Zach Sakow. We got to have this guy on the show because this is going to win the Ig Nobel. I'm right. telling you. It will. This is at least the top three, at least the top three, because I mean, notwithstanding all that real world application with the dust buildup, because I just don't know where he goes from there. We're going to have him on the show. We're going to say, Zach Zakow, where do you go from here? And he's going to say, you know what? I don't know. I'm, I know. I'm I have just, no idea. I just got <laughs> It was just a funny idea. And though I thought I'd do it. Now I'm going to work on something else. Now that I got my Ig Nobel, I'm just going to retire. Well, that was a really nice spread. Yeah, I will say, though, for people who do the ear candling and stuff, I mean, seriously, if you feel like you have too much earwax in your ears, just out, outwardly get a Q-tip or something. That e- ear candling? No. It doesn't even, even what work. ear candling is. What the heck is ear candling? Is it what I think it is? Do you take your earwax and make it into a candle? <laughs> No, 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 no. You take. They have these hot these candles that you you light the candle and stick the candle over your ear, and the light and the heat at one end of the candle is supposed to create a vacuum in this candle that sucks earwax out of your ear. Doesn't work. Oh my god! We you know now I know what Zach Zakow is going to do. He's once he's done with this study, he's going to investigate ear candling, and he's going to be <laughs> a millionaire. Zach Zakow, you're coming on the show. Can we move on to some some stem cells now? Some real some real stuff. Let's get in there. <laughs> I didn't want to say real <laughs> stuff. That was almost all of that stuff was real. Almost every single one. It was. This is some. None of the, I'm not saying this is real, but it is though. This is the real deal. Shinya Yamanaka. Ooh, he's a big name. 
he's a big name. I'm not even going to talk about him. Everybody knows about him. But I just wanted to alert you guys. He was in the Times. They did a nice one-on-one interview. It's nice for young people in science, I think, to see this guy. He's a living legend. Forget all the Nobel Prize and everything. This, you know, the, our guy on the show today, Deepak Lama, is similar to Shinya. Big ups mm-hmm. to you, Deepak, because he's a guy, Shinya, who everyone said you couldn't do anything about the terminally differentiated cells, except for John Gurdon, who proved it in the frog. But everyone assumed you can't. Once you go forward, you can't go back. And he said, hey, you can. You can. He did it. <laughs> he showed it. He proved it. And now there's a whole new world, you know, inclusive of what we're going to talk about today, a whole world of science that's opened up. So it's nice to, to hear him in his own voice and what he thinks about where the field is going and, and how far it's come. So I recommend that to all of our listeners. Really good interview. And that, as the platform, we're going to go into something uh, kind of iffy in terms of bioethics, but we got to have this discussion, all right? Scientists are talking about it, and it's time we did. It's time to talk about making humans from stem cells. Now, granted, that's a little bit hyperbolic in in the headline there, but this is real. In a paper published in Science Translational Medicine, three researchers argue that now it's time to talk about the serious cultural and ethical questions surrounding in vitro gametogenesis. Okay, that's IVG, making eggs and sperm in a dish from embryonic or induced pluripotent stem cells. Elia Dashi, a legend in the field of reproductive biology, a professor of medical science at Brown University and an author on the paper, saying that the medical benefits of the technology are clear, okay? And it's obvious. Imagine a young girl has cancer, she gets chemo, she blows out her whole egg supply, and then she's recovered. She says, what am I going to do now? Well, there's like fertility preservation, a bunch of stuff I work on that's, you know, not so effective, but we're getting there. But there's also the idea of making eggs from her own skin cells, making them into induced pluripotent stem cells, and then differentiating them to eggs. We've covered this on the field. If you were to do this, there'd be no need for the complicated, extensive, and agonizing process of getting a donor egg from a third person. Instead, you just take it from the induced pluripotent stem cells. Same goes for men with infertility disorders. As many as 50% of cases in IVF clinics are male factor derived. So this is a big market. And, you know, it could make IVF much cheaper. A big part of the process is getting the eggs doing all the hyperstimulation, the drugs for the couples to get the eggs and the surgical extraction are paying donors to donate eggs. And last, although this doesn't mention the article, I think this is really going to be at the forefront of treating genetic disease. The idea of taking an embryo from a couple and zapping it with CRISPR to replace or repair some genetic aberration is perhaps practical, but I think much more feasible is doing a careful, precise editing of the genome in stem cells that then you can proof and vet and make sure they're not have cancerous oncogenesis or anything like that, and then make those into eggs that a couple can use. So I think there's a lot of reasons why this could be a major boon for science and medicine, and now it's time to talk. But, you know, there's still a lot of major issues, okay? This isn't new issues. There's always been ethical issues around stem cells and IVF, for that matter. You know, as a maelstrom back in the day when the first quote, test tube baby was born, and everyone imagined she was going to be some grotesque menagerie. No, what are people's imaginations all about? Oh, people love to think the worst, especially when it comes to a carnival-type outcome. But, you know, there are real issues here with the debate. we got to talk about if we can do this, should we do this? What should be the oversight? What should be the kind of precision and threshold for which we have to be sure that these eggs are not going to be affected by some unknown unknowns that are going to be incorporated into an entire genetic lineage and someone who's walking around. It's really demanding a lot of oversight, but I think it's clear, you know, with these new studies that have come out in the last year, which no one expected to see for five to 10 years, we've been sitting on our hands, punting this discussion. It's time to talk. And I bet a lot of IRB, IACUC, and escrow committees are all stirring the pot on how they're going to deal with these questions. I think it's a fascinating question. I think that the scientific community should be talking about this in advance of the actual developments taking place. I mean, we have the work already happening, working on creating sperm from stem cells, working on researchers are trying to make these gametes. They're trying to make them work. So let's have the conversation before it becomes a real issue. And there are 
you know, people in third world countries who are like, I got a lab, I can make it happen for you, you know, yes. before it becomes dangerous. Have the ethical conversation out in the public eye before the research gets to the point of possibility. A hundred percent. I mean, if there's no boundaries, if there's no consensus on what those boundaries are, I mean, yeah, then anybody can do anything, right? What's some rogue element is going to be collecting stem cells from lost hair follicles and just <laughs> creating babies all over the place. I'm going to make babies. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we live in a crazy, crazy world. I know, but given how hard parenthood is, I don't think <laughs> anyone would ever do that. <laughs> Yes, that'd be a good countermeasure. To show them a, a day in the life with my kids. Anyway, you know, it's not just bioethics. There's certain things that we all have consensus on, and that's it. Cancer, bad. Cures, good. Irish-led researchers have found a way to make it potentially easier to kill off tumor cells and make radiotherapy much more effective with people with specifically esophageal cancer. So there's about 390 new cases of esophageal cancer in Ireland each year, but it's soaring worldwide, rising by about 600% over the last 30 years. That's a hmm. question itself. Why are we getting so much esophageal cancer and, yeah. and where everything else maybe seems to be declining? I don't know. Maybe it's the air we breathe. Good questions there, but that's not the scope of this study. Central to the work of this was the isolation and study of cancer stem cells, which self-renew, but also give rise to like the cells that give that are the body of the tumor and the, the cells that are easily targeted by chemotherapy and radiotherapy. But the researchers found that the stem cells can protect the tumor by helping the cancer as a whole to resist the radiation and replenishing the tumor cells destroyed during the treatment. So this is uh, works led by Dr. Stephen Mayer, Trinity College, Dublin. It also involves St. James Hospital, the Coombe Hospital, and the University of Hull. To quote Dr. Marr, our findings strongly suggest that it is the cancer stem cell population that we need to destroy if treatment is to be effective in our esophageal cancer patients. Up until recently, cancer stem cells were largely considered hypothetical, as there were no clear ways to identify them and isolate them. So what the team did is they found that cancer stem cells had low levels of a substance called MIR-17. And when they put a synthetic version of MIR-17 into the cancer stem cells, the resistant cells, they were suddenly easier to kill by radiation. So the idea here is that these cancer stem cells somehow shed the expression of this specific MIR, and that gives them some resistance to chemotherapy. And the clinical application here could be if you could use a synthetic MIR or restore the expression of this MIR-17 in the cancer stem cell population, you make them easier to target and you can ablate the tumor without having it bounce back. So it could be a lasting cure to esophageal cancer, as long as I think the challenge is going to be delivering it to all those cancer stem cells. And, you know, there's a lot of technologies looking into that, but understanding how these cancers evade chemo is the real development here. It gives yeah. us a mechanistic insight into how these, you know, these cancers are smart, Kiki. I hate them. They're brilliant. But we need to be smarter. Yeah, well, I, I mean, now at least we know it was always the question of, okay, how are these tumors coming back? How are the cancers resurging after radiation? We get rid of the tumor and then it comes back. What's going on? Now we know that there are these little stem cells hiding in there that are resistant to the treatments. And so now we're digging in there. So we're slowly getting to it. And so it's great. I mean, like you said at the very beginning, Maybe the better question is to find out what's causing it in the first place. But if we can get rid of it, then so much better. Something. It's something. Well, here's something, too. Dentists out of business. I'm jumping for joy. <laughs> I want this. Yes. Oh, I hate my dentist. I'll say it because he's not my dentist anymore. He oh. was a real crook. Uh-oh. I'm putting this guy out of business. Well, not me, but uh, these other guys. I'll tell you about them. Researchers at King College, they created a method that could revolutionize cavity repair, okay? No one likes a toothache. No one likes a cavity. The only way they treat them now, you know, fillings. They used to be some terrible stuff that probably killed you. Now they have some pretty good fillings. But the bottom line is, is that when you put the filling in, you cover the pulp. And the dental pulp is what makes dentine. And left to its own devices, the dental pulp doesn't really work very hard. Lazy dental pump, but pulp, but it could. You could make it work harder and it could repair. It could produce more of that dentine that would naturally fill 
that cavity or where the cavity was. And you wouldn't need to, you know, put in this foreign substance and you'd get teeth that were then structurally stronger because dentine is a lot better than the substance they put in there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it'd be a lot easier, less painful, cheaper. The way they do it is they induce the biological ability of our teeth to use that dentine without conventional fillings, okay? They take this biodegradable collagen sponge, which they coat in a low dose of glycogen molecules. It's a drug. And actually, the drug that they're using was originally developed for treatment of Alzheimer's disease, interestingly enough. It's a uh, glycogen synthase. And soaking the collagen sponge with this, according to lead author Paul Sharp, enables the dental pulp to increase its capacity for producing the uh, dentine. It's a small molecule called tedeglucid. So if you guys can run out to the store and get some of that, save yourself a trip to the dentist. But, you know, not only is this drug already in play, but the collagen sponges that you might use to fill the cavities are clinically approved and commercially available. So this is all stuff that's pretty much there and ready to use. And it'd be a welcome alternative to standard cavity fills which are really susceptible to breaking or you need refills or if you're my dentist, here's what you do. You take all the cavity, you make the wall really thin, you put in a cavity and then I have to come back in two weeks because the thing broke off and he's putting a full cap on the thing that cost me like two grand. Mm. So if only my boy with his Tegla sub had been in, in the house a little while ago, I wouldn't have that still on my credit card. Kiki. Uh, paying for the teeth. Oh. Always paying for it. It is the worst. I had a dentist where that happened. Something similar happened. They ended up drilling too deeply, and then I had to get I had to get a a crown. I'm like, what? That was your fault, and now I'm paying for it. <laughs> That's exactly. They it. come up with an explanation. They're like, oh no, that was you chewing too hard. You had popcorn. It's your fault. Or no, no, it was just a really deep cavity. That's why we drilled so deeply. Oh, my God. You don't know how good I feel and at the Ugh. same time angry because that's yep. exactly what happened. Not only that, my <laughs> mouth was propped open and with my tongue lolling around and I was on <laughs> nitrous. He had nitrous gas in my nose and he's explaining to me, oh, well, we did pretty much getting my permission to put a crown on. And of course, in that ignominious position, what am I going to say? I said, oh, of course. Oh. Great. Of course. Yes. I'm all stoned and hurting and feeling silly. What an a-hole. Anyway, not my dentist anymore. I'm calling Paul Sharp. Get Paul Sharp on the line. Oh, man. Making new teeth is one thing, but some people, they have, I'd say, broader ambitions. Totipotency, perhaps. You know, pluripotency is this idea a stem cell can make all the cells present in your body, okay? Soup to nuts, head to toe. But totipotency is the idea that your body, the, the cell can make all the cells present in an embryo, you know, from the beginning, all the cells in your body, but also the extra embryonic tissue, the placenta, the yolk sac, the tissues that are kind of at the interface of the mother and child. And, you know, it may, maybe you don't know, human embryonic stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells are not really capable, it's been shown, of totipotency, of making trophectoderm, specifically the tissue that gives rise to the extra embryonic tissues. But researchers have now, in California, have now found that a microRNA called MIR-34A prevents totipotency. So they could take pluripotent mouse cells that were deficient in that microRNA, that they made deficient in that microRNA, and they found that they acquired signs of totipotency. The feat makes it feasible now to explore what is the molecular basis of totipotency. You know, MIRs are defined by their capacity to target multiple genes. So you throw in this one mirror, and you don't really know the whole swath of genes it's affecting, but it's affecting a bunch, and it's enabling totipotency in the cells. So by using this system, the researchers involved in this study, Yang Jin Choi and Chao Po Lin of UC Berkeley, as well, along with Lin Hei, also of UC Berkeley, the senior author, they now have a platform where they can try and garner some mechanistic insight into the, what defines totipotency? And, you know, moving forward, it may be a means of generating extra embryonic tissues, either for basic research or for clinical application that I'm not really aware of right now, but I'm sure they exist. So 
a little insight into what it takes to make everything from a group at UC Berkeley. Pretty ambitious, and they met the mark. Yeah, so this is like the week of the microRNA, that last yeah. study also with my MIR-17. Yep. Preventing the radiation effect, you know, and then it's kind of interesting. And what's that? What's 2 times 17? 2 times 17 is 34. 34. Oh, my God. Look at you doing math. a prime number, and so is 2. I'm freaking out. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is really, it's interesting stuff. I mean, it's so fantastic that we have this world of microRNA to investigate now. I mean, embryology, going back to the totipotency for stem cells, also looking at cancers and how do cancers develop or not, and yeah treatability or not. It's great. We're all over the place, but we have a theme and that's micro RNAs. Micro RNAs there. That's good stuff. Wow. 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 This was an awesome roundup. Remember that all the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. So now let's get into the interview segment of the show. And with our interview today focused on the brain and these neural stem cells, stem cells in the, in the eyes. A reminder from our friends at Stem Cell Technologies to check out their really cool wall chart focused on neural stem cells. Wall chart provides an overview of how neural stem cells can be derived or cultured from various tissue sources and differentiated into specific neuronal and glial subtypes along with many other topics. And this wall chart was created in partnership with Nature Neuroscience and was co-authored by Clive Svensson. Stem Cell Podcast listeners can get their free copies at www.stemcell.com slash wallchart. Okay, so our guest today is Dr. Deepak Lamba, assistant professor at the Buck Institute. Dr. Lamba's research is focused on identifying new methods to treat degenerative vision disorders, including macular degeneration and retinitis pigmentosa, using stem cell technology. His work is considered pioneering amongst those focused on developing efficient methods of making retinal cells in a laboratory dish. His lab is currently concentrating on long-term efficacy and safety studies, which are essential before this form of therapy becomes available to patients. Today, Dr. Lamba is here to discuss this and the details of his most recent publication in Cell Stem Cell. Dr. Lamba, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thank you for inviting me to this. You are welcome. We're excited to talk with you. I mean, you're doing such amazing work. Can you get started by expanding a bit on a few more details about your laboratory and what you focus on? My background is sort of dual. I started off as a medical doctor back in India a long time ago and then moved here to the U.S. to get a Ph.D. And this work actually started out as my Ph.D. graduate student research project where I was Sort of, these were early years when stem cells were, or at least the human stem cells were first discovered. And so my research project involved, can we take these cells and make them into an eye, which at that time was considered a huge task. Can we actually even do this? Fortunately, working in a lab which studied how the eye develops in an, in an embryo allowed us to get the right cues working. And so when we started doing this, we slowly figured out that if you just give these cells all the right conditions as they are developing, as they would normally develop in a body, they do use these cues to self-direct them to specific space. And so we sort of guided them to become the head side of the body and then guided them from the head to the eye. And lo and behold, it actually worked, which was a big surprise when we first started doing this. Since that time, the lab's been working on how do we go from cells that we make in a dish to something that can actually be used in patients. And so I moved here to uh, Buck Institute about five and a half years ago. At that time, I had just published my first research uh, paper again in cell stem cell at that time to show that these cells actually have the ability to go in and integrate into a mouse eye, and more importantly, an eye of a mouse which can never see. So these are mice that are born blind from birth, put the cells in, and they, at that time, we could see that at least they were locally connecting to the circuit. Since I moved here, we figured out that 
even though this process works an inefficient process and so we've been working on barriers to integration why do these cells don't do this very very well since ma over here we've been looking at a bunch of different barriers we published a paper about almost 6 months ago in science looking at the inflammation the environment uh, uh, degenerating environment which in an environment where everything sort of going bad and so how do we fix that and the cells to go in and then this paper was what's the role of our body's immune response to these cells so those are some of the projects that we working for cell repair we have other projects working on uh, how do we take these and use that to make a disease in a dish how do we make a human disease in a dish and use that for disease studies and identifying new drugs stuff like that before we get to all the other stuff you're doing i mean Let's elaborate a little bit because you glossed over this up. It's a big deal. So I guess the, just to put it simply, I guess the appreciation in the field has been the eye. It's a great place to start. There's these trials in Japan that were a little bit had some issues, but now I think they're back on track using iPS cells. And the idea was this is a great place to start because it's immune privilege. You can put non-genetically matched cells in there, and they can integrate and be retained. And I guess the fundamental insight you had here is that not so much the case that it is actually an inflammatory environment and that in order to get the best integration we may need to protect these cells so what led you to that insight i mean everyone all the dogma i'm always fascinated by the dogma you know everyone says oh it's great it's immune privilege immune privilege why were you the guy who said well maybe not so much what led you well, there a part of it was that you always see some inflammation in the eye in the brain all these areas which are always considered immune privilege if they were so privileged why would we ever have inflammation happening and we also knew that any time you're going into an environment which actually has ongoing degeneration so the cells are dying and that causes all these barriers which are naturally present to start now becoming leaky and any time you have a leaky barrier between the blood and the tissue everything's going to go in we just did not think that was that just by assuming it's a privileged issue it's actually going to work when it actually when you go in into an environment where there's ongoing degeneration also when what the, the other thing we found was when we were doing our earlier work when we were doing this without well we did do some immune suppression but not in a very efficient way we found that these cells go in and they integrate into the tissue but you look at the same eyes about 2 or 3 months later and you don't see anything what most people suggest at that time was maybe these cells just once they don't fit into a circuit they just die off and to me that did not make <laughs> sense at that time our idea was can we just go in and test this hypothesis out that you no know, it is not so immune privileged and there were some reports earlier also in literature suggesting that the eye after degeneration does not retain its privileged status and so that that was the idea at the time and uh, it was difficult to get funding for it <laughs> because it was against the dogma and right? now this really doesn't make any sense so we were fortunate that we had a small foundation step up and put some money to for us to carry on this work and so in moving forward on the work i mean you're basically getting rid of the three blind mice <laughs> 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 no more three blind mice. Now there's like two blind mice. <laughs> so yeah, so next steps are sort of we to do this. We had to actually use a genetically knocked down mouse, a mouse where we knock down a certain uh, receptor. We can't really do that in patients, and so now we're uh, going from go identifying a pathway to identifying either antibodies that could be used to block these receptors out or. potentially using small molecules to sort of uh, get around this issue uh, of cell rejection the other way around it probably would be to identify better cell uh, anti rejection cocktails which might work in the eye because these are if you try to do general body immune suppression norm you can't really do it really long term and so what we are hoping is to find ways that we can do it sort of locally so that we don't really mess up the whole body So this that you know puts in all the previous I mean I've heard some hints out there of some of these pilot studies that have been going on I know what was it Jeron initiated one or whatever took over Jeron Okama whoever he's doing these studies now I thought with uh AMD I don't you could tell me but right. it puts it into finer focus because I figure that with these early trials they've been using 
banked ES cells, right? With the assumption that this was an immune privilege there, so they wouldn't have issues. And in, in spite of that, I feel like they've had some encouraging results, perhaps, that maybe they haven't released, maybe some of them they have. And also the study early on in, in Japan. So is this kind of kind reframe the approach uh, before we go forward with those studies that are supposed to be the first in man, real proof oh. of principle for IPS or stem cell derived therapies? If they don't work because of immune response, I mean, should we even move forward with these studies? Sure. There's a lot of value to the studies that they're doing, actually, because one, we're using artificial model systems still, like what we're doing is still in a mouse model, and we really will never know if that same thing will hold true in a human. The studies, both Geron as well as Okata trial, which is now Estrella's trial, are critical to identifying these issues that we may or may not face in humans. Their trial, uh, at least they did, there are two issues with, with or two differences between what they do with the site where they put their cells versus the site where our cells need to go in. The site that they are putting is this layer, which is at the back of the eye, the RPE layer. And even in our work, we found that a lot of the cells in that layer do still survive fairly long. They do go down over time, but they do survive fine. While the ones which actually have to go into a real uh, three-dimensional tissue are killed off much earlier. And that holds true for what they've so far shown in their uh, couple of reports that they've come out with in Lancet, where they showed that it suggests, at least, that along the track where they did transplant these cells, because they just put some cells at the back of the eye, you could see pigmentation along that site, suggestive of that these cells may be surviving, but we'll never know till we actually take the eye out with, you know, whether these cells are the cells they put in versus just local application of those cells following some damage. But they had some subjective visual function tests which were very positive. Some of these cells are not very objective, making it a little bit difficult whether they were just uh, placebo-based effects or real effects. The key point of the trial was the safety of these cells. The biggest big issue that we all face right now is whether these cells, since we are making them from either embryonic stem cells or IPS cells, which always have this tumorigenic potential, both that trial as well as the trial that uh, Dr. Masaya Takahashi is doing in Japan suggests at least that there is no current evidence that they would suddenly change into a tumorigenic cell and be maybe a big safety issue. So I think those are very critical things that we are getting out of. Every trial will give another refinement over what we've already done, and I think these are critical as we move forward to getting it into patients. When you're talking about a congenitally blind mouse and uh, the actual light sensitivity or visual improvement that happens. I mean, we talk about so much of vision taking place in the brain, not in the eye. And if it's a congenitally blind animal, the brain has never gotten that light input. So how much improvement in vision can you do you think we can get? And will we ever know until we test it on monkeys or, you know, a, a more human similar animal? This, what we try to do is sort of the very other end of this problem, right? This is mouse, which is, doesn't even know what vision is. And so we didn't even know if the circuits were right. And so just for that reason, I think this shows that it has a much larger potential than we even originally thought, that the brain can sort of start making sense of things that it has even never seen in its life. That's amazing. There's a lot of precedence for this, actually. So there, there have been studies where there are all these uh, kids who were born congenitally blind because their corneas were opaque. And they once they get some sort of a corneal transplant 10, 20 years later in their life, they slowly learn to make sense and can live a normal life after. The brain is amazingly uh, plastic. It can just start figuring things out. And there's actually a very cool study done at the University of Washington. So... I always bring this up whenever I talk to anybody because essentially that they have been working on are these squirrel monkeys. What we don't know about these squirrel monkeys is all male squirrel monkeys are completely colorblind and all female squirrel monkeys have normal vision. What the group has been studying is treatment of colorblindness by gene therapy. They actually train the monkeys to following gene therapy for them to start to figure out if they're actually making sense of this new color that they've never seen in their life. And they, they put the virus in, to our gene therapy for using a virus. They know the virus gets expressed in about a week's time. But it takes them about 
14 to 16 weeks, if I can remember correctly, for them to start seeing this new color. So the brain starts processing this new vision, can make sense of it. And they can actually, they have found ways to do with color vision testing in monkeys, and it works. There is even evidence that even if we go into a condition where either the person has been blind all their life or has lost blindness very early and then is truly treatment later, the, these signals that go to the brain will start allowing the brain to start making sense by uh, rewiring itself. I think the different areas of the brain too, I think one of the big questions is the critical period of in the brain for development of certain areas. And I think it'll be interesting going into this research to find out the boundaries. What is the extent of critical period for developing the visual systems of the brain and how much will the vision actually develop after? So fascinating. Right. Yeah. The acuity will be something to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be so interesting to see. This is something we don't know. (laughs) We could provide some context for, you know, it's one of the most difficult things to imagine being blind for someone who's sighted. Can you give us some context for like In terms of these patients, they have this progressive vision loss, which manifests as just loss of focus or dark spots in their visual plane. And then in turn, with a therapy like this, how does that recover? Does it just get, is there more clarity? Or as you alluded to, do you just need to get a little improvement or to arrest the degeneration for your brain to kind of compensate and to you to kind of like learn to be functional with your new kind of diminished capacity? Sort of a loaded question there. Like one is, <laughs> when do we actually go in to treat these patients? That's been the biggest challenge in this field. So the general prevailing idea right now is we don't go in till a point that they've lost so much vision that it's affecting their quality of life. Till that time, what you want to do instead is find therapies which can slow down the degeneration or arrest it completely. So at that point, then the, the brain can start using whatever information it's getting. And that's the ideal way to go about doing it. And then, because you can imagine putting these cells in, in itself is sort of a damage. So you really want to go in and do this once they've had severe quality of life issues that they can't even walk around the room. At that time, it's ideal now we go in with cells. The big challenge in the field is how do we get enough cells to go in? Part of the reason is we, as humans, we have close to 100 million light-sensing photoreceptors in the eye, and there's no way we can replace all of them. The best-case scenario would be getting even a few hundred thousand to go in around the central part of their vision so they can have some useful vision. Maybe another 30, 40 years on the line, we have become so good at it that we can replace all of them, but right now that's the best case scenario is that you restore some useful vision so they can not bump into rooms or bump into walls, things like that. So worst case scenario situation. It all comes down to what where the condition is. And then each condition has a different sort of a vision problem. So it's like age-related macular degeneration. What's happening is you're losing your central vision. And so it's the worst of the lot. Wherever you try to focus, that's the part that's affected. And that's where you really want to come in with cells and restore vision. While you go to inherited degenerations, they often start at the peripheral part of your vision. So you don't even realize you've had vision loss till you've lost about 80% of your photoreceptors. So that's the bandwidth that the brain actually has. You can lose 80% of your light-sensing cells and still be able to function normally, as long as it's not in your very central part of your vision. You sort of have to think this through based on the disease you're trying to go after and what stage and how severe it is. But oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's you more than Simple. answer the question. <laughs> you know, I, in terms of delivery, it really hit, like you said, there are 100 million and we got to replace and we can best guess, you know, do maybe a million. Last week's episode, Dr. Song introduced this idea, which I just, I keep thinking about is that like the Zika virus has this tropism for the frontal cortex or wherever it is, pardon me, all you neuroscientists out there who are hating me right now. But is there, instead of doing a cell-based type thing, have you thought about, because you also talked about curing a colorblindness with gene therapy, is there a way that you can kind of rescue the pathology in these cells by delivering something that's non-cellular? Is that an idea that's out there? Actually, there's an very effective ongoing clinical trial that's been going on now close to about 
10, maybe 15 years. So the big problem with gene therapy is you have to find the exact number of patients with this. Uh, so that's a very specific mutation. And in most cases, you want a mutation which is non-functional, so you can replace it. If it is a mutant protein, then you have to do sort of a dual problem where you have to get rid of the bad protein and replace a good protein. So those are a little bit tougher to do. But this RPE, so this trial is an RPE65 trial gene. RP65 is non-functional in these patients, and these kids are born with low vision at birth and progressively gets worse. And in that case, it has worked beautifully. There are kids who are out there with these gene therapy uh, carried out in their eyes, and they show an example of this kid who could barely see and now plays baseball. That's the ability that you can to hit a ball requires a lot of vision. So there's a lot of gene therapy. And so now they're trying to figure out some of these other potential uh, gene defects that can be uh, worked on using gene therapy. The other way around, as I said, there's this problem also for the other group of patients where you actually have a mutant protein, and that's where this new technology of CRISPRs and Cas9s are being really looked into where people want to go in and then just either fix the mutation so it's not a mutant protein or make it completely non-functional so you don't make a bad protein at all. And once you do that, then you can come in and start putting a new gene back in. So that's definitely being looked at. We are also looking, as I said, we had this paper out in uh, science last year where we were looking at uh, the inflammatory component. And so for that work, the idea was how much of a role inflammation, chronic inflammation plays in furthering the degenerative process. So you have some degeneration because the cells are dying, but then almost every one of these diseases has an ongoing chronic inflammatory component, and these inflammatory cells secrete bad stuff to, which causes more cells to die. And so we identified a protein, uh, an evolutionary conserved protein called MANF, MANF. This protein actually completely changes the immune environment from being inflammatory environment to a repair environment. And by doing that, you can slow down the whole degenerative process and restore vision. So there are all these approaches that people are trying to sort of try to restore vision to a significant amount so that we don't have to go in and replace it. What are the next steps for your lab? Continue? Are you going to be continuing on the path of investigating inflammation further? And what are you doing? So we are looking at other pathways which are critical for this whole inflammatory process. We have a few other targets that we've identified. This is an old paper, but we essentially found all these through flies. We had a collaboration here with our uh, key scientific officer who was working on fly eyes, and those have given us a lot of new targets to go after. And so we're trying to look at some of the other targets to find things which might work even better. As I said, we still working on identifying additional barriers to integration. The eye, there are lots of different reasons why cells will not integrate. So we're working on, as I said, we worked on inflammation, we worked on the cell rejection problem. There's also this problem of remodeling. Anytime the eye or even in the brain, a bunch of neurons die, then there are glia, these support cells, which undergo hyperactivation. And what that causes is the whole tissue starts sort of remodeling itself. And we don't want that to happen again. And so we're working on ways to stop this remodeling process so that the, at least the whole total tissue architecture remains as intact as possible. When we go in, the cells can make the right contacts and not make malcontacts so you don't have some sort of a weird vision. We're looking into some of those. As I said, we have this, this is all just the cell therapy side. My, another half of my lab works on disease modeling. So can we create the disease that you or anybody else has in the in a patient in a dish. And essentially, we make 3D eyes in a dish and start understanding the disease process so that we can come in and find new targets to go after. Stem cell fields have completely opened up how we can start now understanding disease process and find new ways to treat patients. You're taking all of those avenues. <laughs> <laughs> you need to take advantage of what's out there right now towards the best you can. If you focus just on one avenue, I mean, there are other researchers doing other avenues, obviously. It really does limit the possibilities when you just stick to one. And then you, can end, you might end up down a blind alley if you're not careful. And I owe this to my PhD mentor. That was his philosophy. It's like anything that looks interesting, try to go after it. Because you never know where the next step in this field is. And so you have to explore all of these ideas. 
And most of these, we had some ideas to go after, and then others, we had no idea. We just thought we'd just give it a try and see what happens. And sometimes it was work, and sometimes it fails, and then you move on to the next thing. Yeah, but that's learning from failures. That's what science is about, right? <laughs> Progress. Keep on going. Deepak, I have seen the light, thanks to you. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully we will be repairing people's eyes sooner than 30 to 40 years from now, you know. Hopefully it'll be much sooner. And Yeah, the field is really moving forward. And as I said, some of these other trials which have happened have given us enough hope that we won't do more harm because that's always the first thing. Being originally trained as a physician, that's the first thing that comes to my head is like, no, no harm. Anything addition you can do is, will be great for these patients. And so these trials at least have suggested that, that we hopefully won't do harm. And so now we just need to add on to those successes and find better ways to do this and hopefully restore very good vision in patients. Yeah, hopefully. There are a lot of people out there who would love that. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful to hear about your research firsthand from you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. This was fun talking to you guys. Of course, a lot of fun. Congratulations on your success. Keep it up. Thank you. More success. We will see you later. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. All right. That was a really, really nice interview with Dr. Deepak Lamba. He doesn't lack for ambition, but, you know, usually you say that's a criticism because somebody wants the moon, but they end up, you know, with just a a hunk of cheese in their hand. But Lamba, he's reaching the moon and beyond. He is. And he seems just like a very nice, quiet, just working on interesting stuff kind of guy. Like he's just doing his work and finding things that look interesting, like he said, and going after them. Yeah, so what you're saying there is that typically successful scientists are real jerks and they yep. think they're no. amazing. <laughs> so that's a little note to everyone who's ever been on Did this I podcast. say that? <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> no, but you meant it in a positive way. We all know I'm the only jerk on this podcast and for good reason because I'm the guy who gets angry, aren't I, Kiki? Oh, you are. You are the angry one. So at this point, we're going we're gonna to rant. It's time for the SCP rant. And this is our chance, mostly Dalen's, to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. So, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? I hope it's we this time because <laughs> this is a little risky. I know that some of my friends could be accused of this, and I don't mean you. But I'm so sick of the loud laughers with the booming laugh in the big it's too big and it's like histrionic and it's like i I don't know nothing's that funny and i don't need to hear it down the block (laughs) much less on the subway stop with the laughter okay it's not it's nothing's that funny it's who you trying to prove your joy to i don't know if it's you're looking at a really good cat video while you're on the subway i mean maybe it leads to a guffaw or two i don't know oh, i'll take a guffaw i love a guffaw a go- <laughs> bah, bah, i can take that it's the ha 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 <laughs> it's too much it's too maybe i do that if i do somebody tell me if you see me loud laughing just smack me in the face <laughs> hey dalen you're loud laughing Yeah, I mean, there's always, if you watch comedy videos or listen to comedy recordings ever, there's always the one person in the audience that you can hear above all thousand people who are in the audience. There's the one loud person. Yeah. I don't know. I think I laugh fairly loud sometimes. It's usually, I don't know, maybe I'm very excited about something. I don't know. I'm just in a hyper excited state to laugh loudly, but I've only, uh, I've only heard you laugh at my jokes and I think it's justified. It's justified. That's right. It's your jokes. I don't know. But aside from laughing, there's also just the generally being too loud as if they can't hear the sound of their own voice when like there's a disconnect between what's coming out and what they're hearing and just always louder than everybody else in the room. And I'm always wondering, I mean, is it a hearing problem or is it that you feel like you're on stage and you need the whole room and not just the person next to you to hear you? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter, but now I'm totally embarrassed and mortified 
because my <laughs> wife has accused me very often of talking too loud. And I swear it's not because I think I'm on stage kooky. Because I think I have like a little bit of a hearing issue. But uh, <laughs> now I'm comes. a little embarrassed. I'm kind of back. I'm backpedaling on the loud laughers because maybe it's not your fault, guys. <laughs> I talk loud sometimes. And now I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Please. There's the on the phone on your cell phone, like on an no. airplane when you land and, no and, excuse. and you pull out the phone and you're the one person going, hi, <laughs> uh, will you pick me up by baggage claim? And it's like, no excuse. no excuse, send a text for Christ's sake. You know, now they have all Wi-Fi in the subway in New York. So routinely my last haven, my subway ride to and from work. It used to be nice. I could read a book. Now I hear people talking on the phone and I, I'm going to get some train rage. Yeah. And he, one of these days, if I don't come in for the podcast, Kiki, it's because I got my hands wrapped around some <laughs> loud talker on the subway train. There are certain sacred spaces, the elevator, the subway. These places should remain conversation free, or at least if you have to have to talk at a subdued level. Yes, quiet, quiet, quiet. It's like church. Yes. <laughs> quiet down now. Simmer down. All right, everybody. You like our rant? Let us know. Do you have other rant ideas? Let us know. We want to know what you think. You can give us your thoughts on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email us stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. All right, Dalen and everyone out there, that concludes episode 84 of the Stem Cell Podcast was a really fun episode. We got some good science, some kind of scary science, some thoughtful science, and a wonderful interview. Everyone, be sure to tune in for our next episode, which again, will have a bunch of great science to report to you and another fascinating interview. And Dalen, I am looking forward to it. That makes two of us, Kiki. <laughs> <laughs>